In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue our series about comparative religion, religions. Um, we've spoken so far uh, about kind of a, a very basic understanding of Orthodox Christianity, um, and then last time we finished speaking about Judaism. God willing, today we're going to speak about um, what we consider uh, a cult, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they consider themselves to be uh, Christian, um, but we consider them to be a cult because they have some very, very basic differences um, in their beliefs compared to mainstream Christianity. Um, and that's why we consider them to be a cult. Um, we're going to speak about them today, God willing. Officially, Jehovah's Witnesses, or we call them JW, um, are called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. That's their official name. Um, and they, they have this publication, like this magazine that they publish, um, regularly called the Watchtower. Um, and it essentially has biblical teaching as well as the specific teachings um, that they teach in their religion. Jehovah's Witnesses um, claiming to have restored teachings lost through the apostasy in Christendom believe they are the only true Christian organization, though they reject central teachings of historic Christianity like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ, and the person of the Holy Spirit. So they reject all of those things. Um, they, they don't believe that Christ is God. They don't believe that there's a trinity. They don't believe Christ was res res resurrected. And they don't believe on you know, the Holy Spirit as being a person um, and equal with God the Father. The Watchtower headquarters has the believers in this cult totally convinced that all who disagree with them, specifically Orthodox Christians, are not only wrong, but are enemies who will be destroyed by Jehovah in the great battle of Armageddon, which is to come. One of the major tools in the Jehovah's Witness evangelism, which they perform zealously, going door to door, um, or standing in public places sharing literature, is their own version of the scriptures called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, or NWT. So one of the ways that they justify um, their beliefs is by using a different version of the Bible. Whereas the majority of the Bible is the same, but there are certain key places, key verses in the Bible that they have changed in order to support their, uh, their, their theology. And this is why it's very important whenever we are reading the Bible is to understand what version of the Bible we're talking about. Because not all versions of the Bible are the same, right? Um, some versions of the Bible, even though they are not intent on twisting the words um, of the original, but they paraphrase them in such a way that they can have a potentially different meaning. In this case, they explicitly change the meaning, okay? And I'll give you um, a, a, an example of that uh, in a little bit. This version, the NWT version, is filled with mistranslations to prove Jehovah's Witness doctrine. In interestingly, this group, which claims to be the remnant, did not come on the religious scene until the 1880s when it was officially founded by Charles Taze Russell. This, uh, we read this in the Revelation. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. So this uh, rest of the offspring, so they interpret that this uh, prophecy about this dragon who had been cast to earth persecuting the woman, right? We understand the woman as being St. Mary who gave birth to the male child who was the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So the rest of her offspring is the church. Okay, They understand that this prophecy is speaking about them. They are the remnant. They are the, 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 the children of this woman um, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ that this is referring to them. By the time he was a teenager, Russell had rejected many of the doctrines taught in his Congregationalist Church, particularly those of the Trinity and heaven and hell, all of which he found unreasonable. After a period of skepticism, he was taken in by Adventist teaching, which proposed that there was no eternal punishment because the wicked would be annihilated. His interest in end-time prophecy was aroused. And we see one kind of characteristic about uh, cults in general is they focus very much on prophecy and how they interpret prophecies. And it's usually they have like a charismatic figure who is one who comes on the scene and says that he understands the true meaning behind a prophecy. And so he teaches this, 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 this prophetical teaching to capture the attention of people who then begin to follow him. I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a man, I forget his name, but he convinced all of his followers that the end of the world was coming imminently and convinced them to sell all of their possessions. And they, they bought billboards, even in Houston. They bought billboards essentially saying the date that the end of the world would come. And all these people, they quit their jobs. They sold all that they had in order to pay for the advertising um, to, 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 to like essentially get, like claiming that the end of the world was coming soon and wanting everyone to be, to be prepared. And of course, that day came and nothing happened. Right, so um, a lot of times these cult figures have such influence um, to be able to to teach something um, that then they get people to to believe in it. In 1879, Russell left the Adventists to launch launch the Watchtower. By 1896, Russell had established the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society with its headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, which is the Jehovah's Witness. Remember, th this is the official name of the Jehovah's Witness. Russell never had any formal theological training, yet he promoted himself as a Greek scholar and wrote a seven-volume series entitled Studies in the Scriptures. In 1912, he was exposed as a perjurer in court when he could not read letters uh, from the Greek alphabet. This, um, this happened several, you know, in a lot of these cults where the, the founder has a claim to have certain kind of knowledge that he just doesn't have and that he can be exposed. In this case, he was exposed saying, claiming he's a Greek scholar, but then it was found that he didn't know how to read Greek. Regardless, he kept increasing his followers. He pr prophesied the end of the world beginning in 1914, but died with his prophecy unfulfilled in 1916. So there became now a series of prophecies by this group and by the, the founder, um, Charles Taze Russell, and later on by his successors about the end of the world. And one of the things that galvanizes people who are members of a cult um, is if they believe that the end of the world is coming, then they're all of a sudden very motivated to, you know, be indoctrinated in this doctrine. You're, you're, you're indoctrinated in it because you, you believe that your entire way of life is going to end. So, yes, I'm willing to give money and I'm willing to give my effort and I'm willing to serve and I'm willing to do all these things for this mission that I feel very passionately about because... I believe that the, all of what I'm doing now is about to end. The end of the world is coming, and I want to secure my place in the afterlife. Okay. His shoes were filled by the charismatic and powerful personality of Joseph Rutherford, a lawyer who served as legal advisor to the group. He set 1925 as the new date for Armageddon. So when the initial prophecy about the, uh, the end of the world didn't happen, 
So then they set another date. Okay, and usually again these cults, whenever there's a missed prophecy, they 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 make some spiritual. They turn it into some kind of spiritual meaning. Say yes, well the end of the world did not come like the the, the Messiah. He did not come physically, but he came spiritually to establish his kingdom in like a spiritual invisible sense, right? In order to justify um, what it is th that they are teaching. When this did not come to pass in 1925, he cast aspersions on the believers, stating they had misunderstood what he had said, and that was not what the Lord had stated all, at all. The name Jehovah's Witnesses comes from Isaiah 43.10, where it says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. So the Jehovah's Witnesses consider that they are these witnesses. They are the ones whom God has chosen. They are the ones who are called to preach this message into the world because they believe in him, and, and they are to share that knowledge, understand. They are the ones who witness, who see God. In order to increase membership, Rutherford instituted the now infamous and widely successful successful door-to-door -door visitation program. Maybe many of us have seen Jehovah's Witnesses um, either come to our door, or one time I was in a gas station and there was a man standing there, and whenever people would come to fill gas, he would give them a copy of this uh, magazine, this Watchtower Bible Tract Society, the Watchtower uh, magazine, as a way of um, as a way of evangelizing. He incorporated scare tactics by telling potential converts that only 144,000 would go to heaven. This method was so successful that Rutherford found himself in a, in a difficult problem. By the 1930s, Armageddon still hadn't happened, and there would soon be more than 144,000 on the roster. So, so they get this number, 144,000, from a literal interpretation of something in the book of Revelation where the number 144,000 is used symbolically to refer to um, all of those who are like the believers. And the number 144,000 comes from 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 represents the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the second 12 represents the 12 disciples, and 1,000 represents heaven because it's like a perfect number. So the first 12 represents essentially all of the people in the Old Testament who were righteous and the second 12 all the people of the new testament who are righteous and a thousand inherited in the kingdom of heaven so the number 144,000 is not a literal number is not talking about there's literally 144,000 people right but it is a spiritual kind of a symbolic understanding of this number referring to all of the believers okay they take it as literal there's 144,000 people who will inherit the kingdom of god and so that message was resonating until such point that they had now more than 144,000 members. And so there was a question now is what about all the extra beyond the 144,000? What happens to them? If you're saying that you can only have 144,000 people go to heaven. In response, he revealed that all Jehovah's Witnesses prior to 1935 would go to heaven. These were referred to as the little flock. All other converts would constitute the great crowd who would not go to heaven but could look forward to spending a millennium on earth with Jesus after Armageddon. So they broke it up into two groups. The 144,000 group, which was called the little flock, they would go to heaven and spend eternity in heaven. The Everyone else essentially after that group was called the great crowd. They would remain on earth in a like reigning with Christ in an earthly reign in the world.
1942, Rutherford died and was succeeded by Nathan Knorr. While Knorr was not a dominating personality like Russell or Rutherford, he fancied himself a prophet and predicted that decidedly 1975 was the true date for Armageddon. So remember, the, I think the first one was, what, 1914? And then 1925, now 1975. Okay, there is a, like an obsession with wanting to know when the end of the world is. He also published a book explaining away the previous erroneous predictions. By 1977, Jehovah's Witnesses had over 2 million active members around the world, despite the unfulfilled predictions and over 200 changes to their doctrines. As of 2021, Jehovah's Witnesses boast a worldwide membership in excess of 8 million, including 1.3 million in the United States. In the past year, 240,000 adults around the world were baptized as Jehovah's Witnesses, according to the group. Historically, the Jehovah's Witnesses are best known for their practices of refusing to serve in the military, uh, refusing to salute the flag, refusing to celebrate Christmas or birthdays or other holidays, and refusing to give or to accept blood transfusions. Rejecting the medical practices of vaccinations, organ transplants, and blood transfusions, the Watchtower has caused the death of many of its members throughout its history. Now, however, vaccinations and organ transplants have been acknowledged by the Watchtower as acceptable practices contradicting their previous doctrinal position. So what do they believe about God? The only proper name for God is Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses reject the doctrine of the Trinity as a false doctrine. They claim that it, that it is nowhere mentioned in the Bible, makes God into three gods, is of pagan origin, and ultimately is derived from Satan. This is what they believe about the Trinity doctrine. God is the Almighty God, and Jesus, his creation, is a mighty God. So in, in Christianity, right, we believe in the Trinity, and we believe that the three persons of the Trinity are all equal with one another. They're not identical, meaning they have different roles. They are different persons or hypostases in the Trinity, but they are one God together, okay? And they are all equal with one another in terms of their divinity. It's not that one came before the others. It's not that one created the other, okay? So here they consider that God is one, almighty God, so there's no trinity, but he has a creation, which is Jesus, which they refer to as mighty God. So in essence, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in two gods, not in one God. The Jehovah's Witnesses' understanding of Jesus' existence is just a revival of the Arian heresy, which taught that the person of Christ did not eternally pre-exist as God the Son, being equal with God and with the Eternal Father, but that he was a created spirit being made by God and used as a created instrument in the work of producing other spirit creatures. This is what they believe. So Jesus is a creation of God, okay, that um, who is a spirit being made by God and used as an instrument in the work of producing other spirit creatures. This is what they believe about Jesus. However, their unique understanding of, or however, their understanding of Jesus is rather unique. So, if, like I mentioned about the way that they twist the scripture. So, if you read John 1, 1, okay, if you, if you read it in the New World Translation, which is their translation of the Bible, this is what it reads. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. This is what it says. 
Now, the word here is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word, the logos. Okay? So, in the beginning was the word. Okay? So, in the beginning was the Son of God. And the word was with God. So, because the Father and the Son are coessential existing together. But then it says the word was a God. As compare this to the New King James translation that we accept. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? So in, in, the, in, in our translation, okay, it says that the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God, equal with God the Father. Whereas in the New, Wor New World translation, it says was a God, differentiating it, differentiating him from Almighty God, which is the Father. According to Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus existed in three separate states or phases. Jesus Christ, before becoming man, was Archangel Michael, the first of God's creation. Jesus ceased to exist as Michael when the life force of Michael was transferred to the man Jesus conceived by Mary and he became a perfect man. There is no incarnation as Christians teach. So they believe that the man, like Archangel Michael, was the one who was created. He, 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 he became converted or he transferred his life force to Jesus who was born by Mary. Um, and then when Jesus died, he ceased to exist. So there was no bodily resurrection okay, of the body of Jesus. This idea that, that um, God exists in different forms is similar to a heresy in the early church called Sibelianism or modalism. And the, the word modalism is referring to modes, modes of existence. Okay, so some people were saying that God is not Trinity, but that he, the Trinity is manifested in a way where God essentially takes different forms. There is a period of time where God behaves and acts as the Father in heaven. There are times when God acts as the Son in the incarnation, and there are times when God acts as the Holy Spirit, but they are all the same. There's no different hypostases. Okay? This is uh, very similar to this kind of heresy, the idea that um, Archangel Michael existed at some point, who later became Jesus on the earth, who later um, was uh, died and ceased to exist. Different modes of the Lord. In his resurrection as a spirit person, so they believe, like when I said, they don't believe in the bodily resurrection, but they believe, they believe in the spiritual resurrection. So in Christianity, we believe that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected. And, and, and you reunited again with the spirit of Jesus. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, he is there now in both spirit and body. Just as we, when we die, before the second coming, our bodies will, will die and they will be buried in the ground and our spirits will go to paradise. But at the second coming, that our spirits will be reunited again with our bodies and that we will live eternally, both spirit and body, in the kingdom of heaven with God. This is what we believe based on scripture. Here, what, what they believe is that Jesus was spiritually resurrected, but he was not bodily resurrected. Okay? The idea of the Lord being bodily resurrected explains why when the people went to the tomb, they did not find the body of Jesus. Like you could have said Jesus spiritually resurrected, that the spirit of Jesus continued to live, but his body is dead and is in the tomb. But that's not what happened. What happened is the body of Jesus was resurrected in addition to his spirit. 
which is contrary to what they are teaching. In his resurrection as a spirit person, Jesus again became Michael the archangel, newly created or restored. Jesus is not God, but a God, the equal of the perfect man, Adam. Jesus was resurrected as a spirit person, not in the body that died. Jesus returned invisibly in a spiritual existence in 1914 to begin setting up his kingdom, revised from an earlier 1874 prediction. What is the significance of 1914? The first, the first prediction of the end of the world. So when that did not happen, their uh, interpretation of it, as I said, is it was a spiritual coming, right? The Lord came in a spiritual coming, invisible, to begin to set up his kingdom on the earth, but there was no physical manifestation of this, right? Because, of course, they can't, they can't claim or they can't admit that they were wrong because that undermines the whole teaching of, of how they are recruiting people and how they are getting them to join this cult because the, 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 the cult membership is obviously based on the fact that, the, that this religion is the truth and they know and they can predict based on the scripture what is going to happen. But clearly, they could not. And so they found a way to interpret it in a way that does not contradict their teaching. The Holy Spirit is also countered in Jehovah's Witness doctrine. The Holy Spirit is not a personal being, but Jehovah's impersonal active force by which he accomplishes his purpose and executes his will. This is another heresy that also existed in the early church. The idea that the Holy Spirit is a force, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, but, it is, but, but he is not a person. He is an impersonal force that essentially is the, 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 the energy of God, but not a person of the Holy Trinity. What do they believe about man and the universe? Jehovah's Witnesses teach that all persons are born sinners. Adam's sin and its punishment, death, passed to all humanity, but man does not have an immortal soul. Only the first 144,000 believers will have immortality in heaven with Jehovah. Remember, what was the 144,000? What were they called? Little flock, okay? And, and the 144,000 is a symbolic number in the book of Revelation that they are interpreting to be a real physical number of people. And so the first 144,000 members of the Jehovah's Witness at the very beginning, they constitute the little flock. They're the ones with uh, that, that will live eternally in, um, in heaven uh, with Jehovah. The remaining believers will be on earth, ruled by Jesus and the little flock for eternity. Now remember, Jesus is not God to them. Jesus is, is, is not the same as God the Almighty. He is a deity, but he is a creation. Okay? When others die, he or she ceases to exist. So they don't believe in, in hell, for instance. If a person is not a part of the little flock and not part of the great crowd of the, of the members of the Jehovah's Witness and they die, then they simply cease to exist. For all the talk of Armageddon, Jehovah's Witness also teach that the earth will never be destroyed or depopulated, but will become a peaceful paradise because this is the interpretation of what it means to live ruled by Jesus on the earth for the great crowd. The great crowd will, will live on the earth in kind of a, a paradise, and, and this will be the, you know, the, the essentially the afterlife, the eternal life for that group of people. 
Salvation and the afterlife. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that only those in their organization can be saved, but their idea of salvation is markedly different from ours. Jesus paid only for the sin of Adam, not for all human sin, to make salvation possible by means of one's works. So essentially, it is salvation by works. There is no idea of grace or mercy or forgiveness. Or The focus is on by doing the works of God and the good works that God has asked us to do, we earn our salvation in heaven or this paradise, this millennial kingdom that we will live in on the earth. This is their understanding of salvation. Salvation is by works. Very, very different from the Christian message, which is that no amount of good work could bring us salvation, which is why the Lord Jesus Christ had to sacrifice himself and to die for our sins, accepting the punishment of sins on our behalf so that we would be freed from the consequences of sin, which is death, and so we could be restored again to God and live eternally in union with God. This is the Christian understanding of salvation, right? That even though there are things that God calls us to do, like, for instance, when he says that in order to be saved, we must be baptized. In order to be saved, we must partake of his body and blood. But those are actions that we are able to do, which is our response to what he has done for us. Whereas in the Old Testament, no amount of good work was able to bring salvation to anyone. So all of the righteous people that lived in the Old Testament, they went to Hades because they had not yet been redeemed by the blood of Christ on the cross. Whereas here in the Jehovah's Witness teaching, Salvation is completely by good works. To be saved, Jehovah's Witnesses must meet the following requirements. Learn by studying the Bible with the aid of Watchtower publications. So they have, again, the, the version of the Bible, which is, is, is translated to support their teachings. They also have all of the other publications and books and the magazines, the Watchtower magazine, that they publish, which are supplemental material in order to teach the people. Um, obey the laws of God and the laws of the Watchtower Society, be baptized into the Watchtower organization, promote the good news of the Watchtower Society from door to door by collecting donations for subscriptions to the magazine. So this is actually why there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of motivation for Jehovah's Witnesses to participate in these evangelistic services where you see them going from door to door and so on because for them this is an integral part of their process of salvation and so they must do it only a special elect class of 144,000 individuals the little flock or the anointed will enter heaven to be with jehovah because of their good works they will share in jesus's nature and become gods in a spiritual existence not a physical one. So they don't believe in the physical resurrection, just in the spiritual existence. A second earthly class of people called the great crowd, also Jehovah's Witnesses, will inherit a paradise on earth during a millennium after unbelievers are destroyed in the great tribulation or battle of Armageddon. So in the second coming, there's this battle of Armageddon. Armageddon, all the non-Jehovah's Witnesses will be destroyed and cease to exist. There is no spiritual life after for them. There is no punishment. There is no hell or Hades. Um, and then everyone else will either uh, be in, in heaven, uh, the little flock, or will reign in this millennial kingdom with Jesus on the earth. Unbelievers and the rest of mankind will be annihilated. There is no eternal punishment or hell, which are wicked concepts originating with the chief slander of God, who is the devil. And they also believe the devil is a fallen angel that tempted Adam and Eve, um, similar to what we believe. 
this is a good stopping point for today. Um, God willing, next time we'll speak about their moral system as well as their means of worship. Um, does anyone have any comments or questions before we conclude? Yes. It's they have their own version that's called the New World Translation, the NWT. So it's not, it's I, I believe actually, like if you go to the mainstream uh, Bible uh, websites like Bible Gateway and Bible Hub and these things, I don't think you will even find it there because it is not an accurate translation of the Bible and they are not mainstream Christians. Again, we consider them to be a cult. So the place to get this is to actually go to the Jehovah's Witness website and there you will find this New World Translation um, Bible. You got your number from the Bible? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. There, there was one time there was a, a priest who um, the Jehovah's Witnesses they knocked on his door, and so he decided instead of just like ignoring them, he opened the door and they started to try to uh, convince him and this. And he said, "No, no, no, come inside and I will tell you." They didn't. I don't think they wanted to go inside. Mm, yeah. But uh, but but you know, like yeah, these these conversations uh, you know could go on and on. So they believe in something called the great apostasy. And actually, some Protestants believe in this as well. The belief is that, so for instance, we as Orthodox, we always point to the early church. And we say, look at the early church. Um, the early church had the truth. The apostles learned it from Christ, and they taught it to their disciples and so on and passed down from generation to generation. And so we go back to the original church, and we say, what did they practice and believe? And that's what we also practice and believe. But... There are some people who believe in what they call the great apostasy, which is essentially the belief that after the time of the apostles, the whole church fell into darkness and, and into deception and did not continue to believe in the truth. 
and started to practice and do things contrary to what Christ taught. And so from that period of time until some point 2,000 years later, however long, so I think it's said in, like in the 1800s, right? At that point is when uh, the truth was rediscovered again, right? So in this concept of the great apostasy, these groups that believe this could believe that for literally for a period of like 1,900 years or 1,800 years, right, all of the church was invalid, okay? And it was only rediscovered and reformed at some point in the future. And that's why they don't go back and look at what is it that the early church taught and did because they consider that all the church did was invalid at that point. So that's, I, I would think that that's what, because I think that's what they would, what, what they would say. Yes. Because they reject holy tradition. You know, so we... We, we look, we, there are many things that we believe that are not written in the Bible, okay? There are things we believe that are not written in the Bible, and the reason is because of the holy tradition. We, we see them implemented in the early church. We see them mentioned by the early church fathers, but it doesn't mean that they're, like, even if the concept is written in the Bible, but the details is not, right? So anyone who rejects holy tradition essentially says, well, if it's not explicitly in the Bible, then we don't practice it. Then when they see the early church doing things that is not explicitly written in the Bible, well, they say, no, you are contrary to the faith. And that's why they would say that they've fallen away in an apostasy. right? But it's very arrogant you know, to say that for a period of 1,800 years, the whole church was in darkness until I came along. And when I came along, I restored it all and I put it back the way that it was supposed to be, the way that Christ intended from the beginning. But sadly, this is what some people believe. You're, you're absolutely right. But a lot of people don't understand this. You know, like they don't, they don't understand it. Hmm? Change the Bible? Yeah, they, they change the interpretation and the understanding. Like historically, the church always understood it in the symbolic way. But when someone comes that's separated from and disconnected from the tradition, they're going to completely re, you know, reinterpret everything according to their understanding. And maybe they don't have the best intentions either. You know, so... Yes. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if if there is a specific denomination that would say yes, we believe in the great apostasy as like a doctrine. But if you talk to people who are Protestants, and I've heard this from people who are Protestants, usually the people who have a, a, an understanding. You know, there's some people who just go and attend church because I found this church in my neighborhood and I like the people there and I attend church. And I'm not really thinking so much about where did this faith come from. It's just a teaching that the Bible is the infallible word of God. And so this is the only thing we, we accept and we believe. But there are some people that when you begin to present them with Okay, well, this is why we believe in a tradition. This is why we believe in something that is not just the scripture, but something beyond the scripture as well. Then that's how they will respond. And they will say, well, if you see the things that the early church did, it's not in line, according to their understanding, with what is written in the Bible and what Jesus taught. And so that's there. So I, I don't know if there's, and I could be wrong. I mean, I don't know if there's a specific denomination where if you go to their website, they will explicitly speak about the great apostasy. Um, but, but certainly, 
Protestants believe that, for instance, the Catholic Church fell into corruption at the time of Martin Luther in the 16th century, which is what justified the Protestant Reformation. And so from that point on, they went a different direction. And so if you ask them, well, what about the church before that? They say, well, it's corrupt. You know, it's, it's corrupt. Not only are the practices corrupt, but the faith itself is corrupt, which is why we needed to go a different direction. Now, if you ask them how long that period of time was, you know, from 1521, which is when the Protestant Reformation happened, how far back in history, you know, at one point it was corrupted, I don't know what they would say. But I know there's the people who, 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 who believe in the great apostasy, they, they literally will say up until right after the generation of the apostles, everything fell into darkness. We have three, three, three questions. Ferry and then Norma and then Michael. The second coming is the establishment of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Jesus on the earth in a peaceful paradise where people will live there with him, with him ruling over it. That's what they believe is the, the millennial reign. Okay, Norma. In what, sorry? Cross. They believe that Christ was crucified on a stake, not on a cross, like a, like a pole. That's what they believe. Yeah. No, they don't believe that he is divine. Well, they, not divine at the level of God the Almighty or God the Father. They believe that he is a creation. They called him a spirit being. So he wasn't human. Right? He was a spirit being, and he didn't have to be fully human because we, we require that in order for us to have salvation, Christ had to have taken the fullness of humanity so that when he dies on the cross, he, he takes the consequence of, of the human sin, so he has to be human. But because their, their, um, their system and belief of redemption had nothing to do with that, and it's more about salvation by works, they didn't have to believe that he was a human. Now, they believe that he, he was born of St. Mary, but not as a full human like, like we do. So they don't, they don't see him as being fully man and fully God in that way. Okay? Yes. You know, like a forum where you're just talking to somebody at the door, uh, in my opinion, you're not going to get very far, especially when they're just coming with the mindset of, I have to deliver this information to you, and then I have another 10 houses that I'm going to go to and deliver information. But I think the best way is to, you know, you can mention what is it that you believe and then point them to some resource that they can choose to go to on their own time and get more information. Because again, I don't think the conversation is going to be able to get into all of the details in that short amount of time to actually get anywhere. But not to be antagonistic, you know, showing kindness and, and love and, and having some resource to point them to says, you know, you want to know this is what I believe and, and, you know, here's why. And maybe try to point out, knowing some of the things about kind of the, the errors in their own faith, point them out, you know, quickly and say, you know, I don't believe this because of one, two, three. 
Um, this is what I believe, and if you want to know more about it, here is a reference, for instance. There, there, are, there are many websites, I think, that have that. Actually, this topic of comparative religions in general and comparative theology, there is an excellent book called Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, which essentially is written by Antiochian Orthodox priest, I believe he's Antiochian Orthodox, where, where he, he goes through literally every religion you can imagine and every denomination of Christianity and even these very, very small denominations maybe none of us have heard of, um, and speaks about their, their unique beliefs and how it compares to us. There's also, based the same speaker, um, based on that book, there is a series of podcasts on Ancient Faith Radio where you can listen. His, the, the priest's name is Father Andrew Stephen Damick. Um, Father Andrew Stephen Damick, uh, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy. It's excellent. You can learn so much about all these topics and in much more detail as well. Um, so I, I really recommend that. Okay? Yes. Yes. No. I, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't. Th did we? S no. So they believe that Michael, the life force of Michael, was transferred to the man Jesus conceived by Mary. So I'm not sure. I, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. But. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think they do. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O God, to enrich our minds and to help us to understand our faith and to understand the faith of others and to know, O Lord, how is it that we can speak to them about you in a way that they can understand so they can be illuminated and not to live in darkness or ignorance away from you. Grant us, O Lord, a desire not to simply win arguments about our faith, but to bring others to you, O Lord, and to seek their salvation in all things that we do. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.